All right, so where are all the kids kids at this morning? You guys go ahead and raise up your hands. All right, uh, first I want to show you a picture. I need your help identifying somebody. Maybe. There we go. Who is this? Ariel. Ariel, and who's Ariel? So she was a mermaid and then she turned into a princess. Was she a princess when she was a mermaid? No. No. All right. Name. Sure. Yeah, all right. So today, kids, we're going to talk about Ariel. But not this one. Uh, next slide. Today, in our passage, we have the word Ariel. And this is what it says. It says, Ah, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. So I don't think that God here in Isaiah uh, is, is talking about the Disney princess. What do you guys think? Do you guys think that he is? No. No, so he's not. All right. So what we need to do is we need to figure out what he's, he's talking about. And so here I want to I show you another slide, not, not Ariel. This one, right? Notice this passage in the Bible is from 2 Samuel chapter 2. And notice how it's laid out. See how it's all just a bunch of words, kids, right? Just a bunch of words. Now go back to the Isaiah one. Before that. That one, right? You notice how this one is different? The words are like in, in shorter lines, and they're not all spaced the same. They're kind of staggered, right? The reason why the Bible does that is because it's telling us that it's a different kind of writing. In that passage in 2 Samuel, just like what you see in like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in the New Testament, is it's a, it's a story. And so they just write all the words kind of together. But in Isaiah, this is poetry. And one of the things that people do in poetry is they use words to mean something that is different than what the word means, kind of like a, a code word. And so what we have in Isaiah 1 and 2, uh, in chapter 29, verses 1 and 2, is, is Isaiah is using the word Ariel like a code word. And so kids, I need you guys to help me understand this code so that we can walk through this passage together this morning. So we've, al- we've already said that he's not talking about the Disney princess, right? So Ariel's got to be something else. So let's see what he says. He says, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. So here he's saying that Ariel is the city that David encamped. Does anybody know what city David encamped in? Or the city that the Bible calls the city of David? What do you think, Landon? Bethlehem. That is a correct answer. The Bible does call Bethlehem the city of David. But... He also calls another city the city of David. (laughs) Bethlehem was where David was born, but this city is the city that David founded. Like, he made it a big city. And it's the most important city in all of Israel. Jerusalem. That is the correct answer. So... Let's, let's, let's kind of go forward and see if, if, that, if that's right. So we think maybe that Ariel is a code word for Jerusalem. Then he says, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. So is Jerusalem a place where uh, Israel had a bunch of feasts all year round? Yeah, you think so? All right, so 
Let's keep going. Then he says, I will distress Ariel. So God is going to do something to Jerusalem. There's going to be mourning and lamentation. So he's going to judge Ariel. But then at the very end, he says, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. So if Ariel is Jerusalem, here he says, Jerusalem will be like a Jerusalem to me. Does that make sense? No, right? So here, I think, is a place where this this guy, Isaiah, writing this book, is using poetic language. He's using this code word to mean something else, but then also mean what it means. So the word Ariel in the Bible, what it means is an altar hearth. Who knows what an altar is? What's an altar? What do you think, Landon? A place where they sacrifice the animals. That is absolutely correct. What about a hearth? Anybody know what a hearth is? It's a word we don't really use anymore. What do you think? A heart? Not heart. A hearth. It's got an H on the end because it's weird. Hey, Dinah and Sophie, what does Grandpa have in his hearth room at his house? A fireplace. A hearth is a place where you have a fire. So, if we put this together, an altar hearth, it's talking specifically about the place on the altar where the sacrifices were burned to pay the penalty for people's sins in the Old Testament. And so, here, at the end of Isaiah, he's saying, Jerusalem is going to be like an altar hearth. God is going to distress it. There's going to be moaning and groaning and lamentation. And he's going to make it like a place that he pours out his judgment on. So when God talks about Ariel in Isaiah 29, 1 and 2, he's talking about this thing that he's going to do in Jerusalem. He's going to bring judgment on this city. Uh, And kids, I would go home, talk to your parents, and ask them, about why God is bringing judgment against Jerusalem. And ask God about what that judge, or ask, ask your parents about what that judgment points to and looks forward to and how that's not the end of the story. Uh, because it gets, it gets better. He's not just going to judge them. He's going to do something through this judgment. So let's, let's pray and we'll move into the rest of this passage. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are gracious. And that judgment isn't the end of the story. And I pray today that as we look at your word together, that you would help us to to learn from it and and see um, application for ourselves in this story about these people who lived in Jerusalem many, many years ago. And that we we would see that just like you brought judgment against them, you, you brought judgment against us and our sin. And you will judge us and our sin. But thankfully, we know from the New Testament that you sent your son to, to pay that penalty, to die on another altar, paying for our sins as our sacrifice. I pray that you would help us to trust that more today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Kids, Thanks a lot for your help in understanding the the first two verses of this passage. To everybody else, full disclosure, I feel pretty awful 
And so if at any point I just leave, uh, Matt's going to finish the sermon. <laughs> All right, let's start by reading, reading the rest of the passage. We already read the first two verses, but we're going to go ahead and read the whole thing. Uh, it's Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to read verses 1 through 24. He says, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, and I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers and raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down, your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper." But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts, with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her in her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied, or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion." Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this... People draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are done in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside from him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, No more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. So for the first two verses, we've already seen that what this passage is going to be about is going to be about God judging Jerusalem. 
So Isaiah all along has been telling the people again and again and again, uh, if you don't repent, if you don't return to the Lord, judgment is going to come against the northern kingdom, judgment is going to come against the southern kingdom, and now he begins to get more specific and talks about where the judgment is going to come and the ways in which it's going to come. So here in this passage, he's talking about the siege of Jerusalem. So he said he's going to distress the city, there's going to be moaning and lamentation, and then he he, he keeps getting more specific about what's going to happen. In verse 3, he says he's going to encamp against them all around. So he's going to send an army to surround the city. They're going to besiege the city with towers. They're going to raise siege works against the city. What that means is they're going to come up against the walls. They're going to build these big, strong towers. And from those towers, they're going to wreak havoc on the city. Like these siege works allowed armies to get up on top of platforms outside the city and shoot arrows and other things into the city and just just cause destruction from outside even before they've actually entered the city. God says in verse 4, they're going to be brought low. From the earth they'll speak. From the dust their, their, their speech will be bowed down. Their voice is going to come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. Uh, from the dust like a whisper. So the, the result of what God is going to do to Jerusalem is that these people who are proud and boasting in their own strength and trusting in their own might are going to be brought low by this judgment that's coming against them. But the judgment that's coming against them, the, the armies that God is going to use to, to rage these siege works, to cause all these problems in the city, they're going to face judgment too. Verse 5, he says, But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. They're going to be small and insignificant, just, just cast away. In an instant, suddenly they'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest. Uh, then he gives this, these, these visions, this, this example of a, of a man who has a dream. He dreams that he's hungry and he eats in his hunger, in his dream, but then he wakes up and he didn't actually eat food, so he's still hungry. Or the guy who's thirsty and in his dream, he dreams that he's drinking a bunch of water, but then he wakes up and it was a dream, so he's still thirsty. And so what, what God is telling us about these other nations is, is three things. Uh, the first thing that he's telling us is he's, Isaiah is, is reinforcing the idea that he's been making throughout the book of Isaiah. And that's that all these other nations that are doing things on the world stage, like Assyria that God is going to use to come and attack his people, these nations are under God's control. Uh, earlier in the book of Isaiah, he said that God whisper, or, or whistles and they come. So these, these foreign nations are kind of portrayed like, like, a, like a puppy. Like God calls them, they come and do what he tells them to do, and then they leave. That's what these nations are doing. So here in this, in this passage where he's talking about this judgment's going to come against Israel at the hand of foreign armies, he's, he's reminding the people that these nations are under God's control. The second thing that he's telling us is that uh, God's going to restrain them. Right? There's two illustrations he gives about the people who dream. Right? They wake up and they're, they're not satisfied. Their, their hunger isn't satisfied. Their thirst isn't quenched. These armies that God brings against Jerusalem are bloodthirsty armies. They came in, they wiped people out. But Isaiah here, even as he's telling uh, God's people about this judgment that's going to come against them, is reminding them, first, that God's in control, and second, that God is, is holding the reins of these armies. They're only going to be able to do as much as he lets them do, and then they're going to be held back. They're going to wake up not fully satisfied. Uh, and then the third thing that he tells us in these verses about these other nations that he's going to use to judge Jerusalem is that he is going to, uh, to judge them too. 
Right, so he's gonna he's he's in control of these other nations. They're restrained by him, and then he's gonna visit them in judgment too. He says, in an instant, suddenly they'll be visited by the Lord of Hosts, uh, and because of that, they're gonna be like the small dust, like the chaff. Um, so the city's gonna be judged. The nations coming against the city are gonna be judged. But what about the people in the city? Well, that's what we see in verses nine through twelve. He says that they're they're astonished. They're they're blind. They're they're drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink because God has poured out on them, verse 10, a spirit of deep sleep. They're, they're, they're spiritually numb. They're desensitized. He's closed the eyes of the prophets. He's covered the heads of the seers. He's taken away their vision and their revelation. Uh, he says it's like uh, having a book that you give to somebody that can read, and he says, I can't read it. It's sealed. Or you give it to somebody who, who can't read, and they say, I can't read. Uh, this vision that Isaiah is giving to the people isn't able to be received by them because they've gotten to the point that God has closed their eyes and closed their minds to his message. He tells us why in verse 13. He says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. This is not a good wonderful things with these people. Like the wonderful things that he used to do on their behalf, he's now going to do against them. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. These verses are probably familiar to you because they're used in the New Testament. It's, it's how Jesus describes the Pharisees. They're people who, instead of worshiping God to worship God, instead of putting their faith in him and doing what he called them to do, they, they were all concerned about man-made religion. They had this list of rules and regulations, and they said, if, if I do these things, then I'm a good person, and God will love me, and that's me worshiping God. They're not doing what God tells them to do. They're doing what they tell themselves to do. Um, and here, I would encourage you, um, to see that and not just think, oh, well, that's like the Pharisees or that's like these people in Jerusalem. But that's not me. Because the reality is that we very often are like the Pharisees and are like these people in Jerusalem in that we care more about what we think we should do to worship God or what someone else thinks we should do to worship God than we do about what God tells us we should do to worship God. Uh, we care more about the externals, the things that people see us do for God, than we care about the things that no one sees. And for example, it is way easier for me to get up here and talk to you about the Bible because you all see me do it, right? If I don't preach a sermon on Sunday morning, you all know that I didn't preach a sermon on Sunday morning. But if I don't spend time in prayer or in the Bible on Monday morning or, or Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, none of you know. Right? You don't have secret cameras in my home, do you? <laughs> and it goes the same for you, right? It's, 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 it's easier for people to identify your spirituality when you go and do things in front of them. It's a lot harder for us to be disciplined and love God in the things that no one sees. So I would encourage you to, when you hear verses like this, don't just think, oh, that's the Pharisees, that's you know, the Jews in the Old Testament, but remind yourself that that's you in, in ways that, that you may not realize. And we need to repent of those. 
We should love God because God calls us to love God, not so that other people can see us love him. Because if that's why we're doing it, we don't really love him. We just like to pretend like we do. He keeps confronting them in verse 15. He says, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are done in the dark and say, who sees us, who knows us. So they have this external religion with no internal backbone. And what's worse is they know it. That's what verse 15 is telling us, right? They're hiding from God. They're hiding their plans and their deeds because they think like he, he, he can't know. Like he, he's not going to find out about this. And verse 16 says that they're turning things upside down, right? They are, are reversing the created order. God is the one who made everything. Because of that, he has authority over us. But they are pretending like they are the ones in authority. And that's what this, this illustration is communicating in verse 16. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. That's, that's ludicrous, right? But that's exactly what they're saying. And that's exactly what we say sometimes when we care more about what we care about than we care about what God cares about. Then he tells us that it's not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. Uh, here, the little while, unfortunately, is from God's perspective, not from our perspective. Because what he's talking about here is he's talking about, about what's ultimately going to happen in Israel. The, the, the field of or, or Lebanon, the forests of Lebanon, are, are throughout Isaiah a symbol for the strong and mighty. Like, they're the ones that can't be knocked down. They're these huge, massive trees. But here, he says, in a little while, those who seem like they're these huge, massive trees are going to be leveled. And what's going to be left is this fruitful field. Uh, God is saying that his people, they appear strong and mighty, but, but they're really shallow, and they're not producing any fruit for him. So he's going to remove them. He's going to tear down that forest and replace it with a field that produces Fruit. He says, in that day, the deaf shall hear, the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. He's talking about what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about what's going to happen when the Messiah brings his kingdom in its fullness. And these are the kinds of things that Jesus did when he came in the New Testament. He says, the ruthless are going to come to nothing. The scoffers cease and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. So all evil is going to be removed from this unfruitful field so that it can be fruitful. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that. Uh, it's going to be a very little while. And he sums it all up at the end of the passage in verses 22 through 24. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, Concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, those who murmur will accept instruction. He's saying that his people are going to be who they're supposed to be. Even those who go astray are going to come to understanding, they're not going to stay astray. Even those who, who murmur and grumble and complain, they're going to receive instruction and stop murmuring and grumbling and complaining. Uh, they're going to sanctify God's name. They're going to care more about what he says than what anyone else does. And I think the clue 
And we can't miss here is in verse 22 where he says that the, the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. He's, he's, he's hearkening back. He's, he's referring back to this promise way back in the book of Genesis where God called Abraham right out from his idolatry. Abraham was worshiping idols. God called him out of it. He's, he's really doing something quite similar for his people now. He's calling them out of their false worship and their idolatry so that he can do something else with them. And God, when he calls Abraham, he gives him promises. And his promises directly correspond to all the curses of the fall. What he's telling Abraham, he's telling Abraham that through him, he's going to bless him. He's going to make him a blessing. He's going to make him a great name. He's going to give him a great land. He's going to overturn the curses of the fall through Abraham and his descendants. And the rest of the Old Testament is about unpacking that promise and seeing it fulfilled in Abraham's descendants. And Abraham's descendants are the people of Israel. And so it's been... uh, a long road of ups and downs, and mostly downs at this point in Israel's history, is they're not being the people God called them to be. They're not being a blessing to all nations. They're not a nation through which God can overturn the curses of the fall like he promised Abraham they would. He redeemed Abraham, and and, and they're waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. And here in Isaiah 29, Isaiah is res- reminding them, God through Isaiah is reminding them that those promises, even though this great judgment is coming against Jerusalem, are going to be fulfilled. The people are going to be a blessing to all nations. There's going to be this descendant that comes through them that's going to overturn the curse of the fall. And the result is going to be that people are going to stand in God's presence and sanctify his name. They're going to stand in awe of him and worship him. And they're not going to go astray and they're not going to murmur. They're finally going to be the people that God called them to be. And that's a little while off. In this passage... Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, describes Jerusalem as an altar. It's a place where he's going to pour out judgment on their sin so that it is consumed, so that it's taken away, so that people can move forward from where they are. Obviously, this judgment, like all the other sacrifices in the Old Testament, are are insufficient and inadequate. They look forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate one who stands in our place as our substitute, who bears the judgment against us and our sin. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you as, as we you know, think about this judgment against Jerusalem and how, how it really you know, connects with our life here today in 2018, is remind yourself that just like a judgment came against these people, your judgment came against Christ. And, and the cup and, and the bread represent the fact that his body was broken and his blood was shed for you and for your sin. And then it's also bigger than that. It's not just about us and our sin, but it's about the fact that he's bringing a kingdom. He's bringing a new heavens and a new earth where evil doesn't exist anymore, where we'll finally be the people that he's called us to be, where there won't ever again be any kind of disconnect between who we are inside and who we are outside. And that's something we should hope for and long for and ask God to make that very little while, very little while to us too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to see your plan painted across the the pages of Scripture. That we can know that so many of your promises find their yes in Christ. 
and so very few of them are we waiting to still be fulfilled. But we are waiting. God, help us to, to put our hope and put our trust in you and your promises and not in ourselves and, and the external observances that we might make to make others think that we love you. God, I pray today that you would stir our affections for Christ as we're reminded that you poured out our judgment on him in a much greater and more significant way than you poured out judgment on Israel. I pray that you would help us now by sending your spirit to to prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper rightly together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.